So, uh, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Emmaus Way. My name's Tim Carlos, and I'm very happy to be here to play some songs with you. I have with me here on drums, Mr. Dale Baker, and on bass guitar, Casey Toll. Oh, 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 
Tim. Welcome to Emmaus Way. My name is Ben. I'm on staff here. We're glad you're here. Um, thanks to Tim Carlos for a great kickoff to what feels, yeah, our, our fall reflections on who we are, who we've called, who we feel called to be together as a community. Um, that is to say, as we've talked about throughout the summer, we're a collection of people who pretty well cover the gamut of faith experience and traditions and such, but we find ourselves also mutually fascinated by the gospel of Jesus Christ and how you shape a diverse but also purposeful community in that space um, feels, feels like a hard question. And in, in Nick Lowe's terms, what does it look like to pursue peace, love, and understanding? Um, values that seem pretty frivolous and trite until you start to take them seriously and measure them against the world we live in. So... Those are hard questions. They're ones we feel compelled to answer together, and that's kind of what we're up to tonight again. Um, other things that we like to do as a community is sort of listen to all the voices in our midst, and among those voices are in a, really an increasing number of, from a personal level, there are, I've noted an increasing number of kids, including in my own household. And so, yeah, we're glad you're with us. And one of the ways we let you lead us is always to do a community song, and I think that we're very, very soon to introducing a new one. I think I just decided with Elizabeth a few minutes ago that we'd do that on Baptism Week coming up. But for now, we're still singing about the Holy Spirit, and we know that one really well, and you lead us really well. So please, kids. Holy Spirit, So, announcements, things happening. Elizabeth's going back to the back, and Molly is uh, not with us tonight, unfortunately. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Baptism Week coming up, um, which I would normally have done. Tim, do you want to talk a little bit about Baptism Week? Okay, all right. So, yeah, on, on September 25th, um, the kids have really been talking about this recently. We're also opening a time for anyone who's adults in our community who are being baptized. We're going to have some dedications of infants. We're going to have probably some um, recently born infants being baptized. We're opening up a space for believers' baptism for some of our kids. And kind of trying to embrace this multivalent ecumenical tradition that we're trying to model in a Mayus way with this, this set of entrance vows and, and ritual into our community. So we're looking forward to that. If you want more info about that, Elizabeth is a great person to talk to. Um, but yeah, two weeks hence, we'll be excited about doing that. Tim, do you have any like canned stuff? I feel like there's stuff yes, going on. there is. Um, so most of you know this new faces tonight. Uh, one of our primary partnerships 
in the area is Durham CAN. It stands for Congregations, Associations, and Neighborhoods. It's a grassroots, nonpartisan uh, political organizing community. And um, we do work with them in all realms of justice, which would be right now housing, education, a whole range of things. But there is um, an upcoming action tomorrow. Um, And again, this doesn't hit everybody's schedule, but um, one of the big pushes that we've been making is for workforce affordable housing in Durham, um, uh, which is basically targets people who make roughly 30% to 65% of the normal income in Durham. Obviously, downtown is being very populated by more of the entrepreneurial class. Uh, lots and lots of money going into uh, upper-end downtown investment. And so we have been uh, working with the city and the county to get land for affordable housing. Um, the city has made some significant promises to us, um, in, especially those of you who are familiar with the bus station, that kind of Jackson Street site. Uh, we got a promise for 80% affordable housing uh, for that location. Um, and it, there's a vast pressure to not fulfill that promise. If you've been reading the paper, you'll have seen lots of dialogue uh, in every direction for that. So anyway, the Durham County um, um, the Durham, Durham County commissioners are meeting tomorrow at five o'clock uh, down in the downtown kind of. Uh, I can give you the address if you're interested. And Can is trying to get fifty to hundred people at those meetings. We've been attending all the city council meetings, all the county commissioners meetings, and just kind of providing both some surveillance and presence that there are a lot of people's lives impacted by this. So if you're interested in attending that, uh, you can ask me afterwards or Tim Wooten afterwards, and I'll I'll uh, Tim is. Our, the leader of our kind of can action team here. Um, so uh, we'll let you know about that. It was late breaking, but uh, that's next. Thank you, Tim. Anything else like community announcement wise that I've missed? If not, I'll just say we're still kind of early in the year, early in the fall. I see some faces I don't know at least very well, if at all, here tonight. We always want to say there are lots of ways to get connected in a mass way. Um, a lot of avenues to do that. We were, I was just talking with Molly this week, and we were noting, like, even just going through and seeing, like, even on a really, even even on, like, a Labor Day week where we have, like, two, three dozen people here, there's probably another several dozen people that are going to engage Emmaus Way in some form through the week. Small groups, pub group, missional partnerships. So uh, there's a, we're a vibrant community. There's a lot going on. If you want to get connected to that, there's a yellow card out on that front table you can fill out. Um, where you can give us your information, get on our listservs. Also, go to our website, and we have kind of a list of things you can get involved in. Um, Again, small groups, we're always looking to kick off or reorder during the fall if needed. Um, Pub groups just started a new series, a book called Evicted, um, very, very connected to kind of the issue with Durham Can, as Tim was talking about. So, yeah, a lot of different spaces um, to get connected if you want to do that. Um, And folks should with you about pub group. Yeah, with me about pub group, because I am, I am usually there. <laughs> yes. Or me. Or Tim. Uh, there was something else I wanted. Oh, um, yeah. I'm going to introduce a recurring segment in the announcement space, and it's called What Time Is It? Because right now, it's 5.17, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, <laughs> We're a freewheeling community from staff on down. I mean, you know, we can, 
We could probably start at 4.45 if we really wanted to. We haven't. Actually, it's become increasingly normal for us to start. Right now, I think tonight we started at 5.05. And we do that really well, and we usually wrap up right at 6.30, about our hour and a half target. And in many ways, we love being loose and hospitable enough to well, if someone came in right now, it would be perfect, to welcome you <laughs> at 5.15. But we also desire to be hospitable to newer folks, or folks who just don't know any better than to show up at 5 o'clock on the dot, or even earlier. I mean, people come earlier. So, so there's often this sort of, if we threw a party and no one came vibe for, you know, that first, like, 10 minutes... And, again, nothing wrong with that, but we do want to be hospitable to folks that are newer to the community, folks that are checking us out for the first time, to leave ample space for the dialogue so we're not sort of, like, constricting that to make sure we're ending on time. Because we have children's workers whose clock ends right at 6.30, and we want to be generous to them. So there's just a lot of reasons why our start time shouldn't continue to migrate. And, you know, again, staff on down. So I am announcing a great journey back to the future. Um, And everyone knows that 88 miles an hour takes a certain amount of ramp-up time, you know, to get there. So we're going to be working on that. And you'll have the recurring segment, what time is it? I think we did 5.05 today. Over the next several weeks, month or two, we we really do want to get, you know, a hard start at 5. And as Tim and many other people would tell you, it's, it's better to play for people than no people. Though you'll sound great regardless. So... There's, there's a recurring segment, what time is it? Help us out if you can with that. I'm going to pivot back to Carlos, invite yeah, Tim and Casey and Dale back up. I do want to know as they're coming, we're especially grateful to Tim stepping in tonight. From He was booked as a sideman, became the leader for the week about Friday. Mark's had a heck of a week. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, I think Tim's going to mention a little bit more. But also seeing Casey and Dale back, I mean, it's a heck of a band to put together in three days. Um, as you can already tell, they're really talented folks, and I think it's just a measurement of we would not be who we are, musically or otherwise, without folks like this investing in what we do. So we're excited to have them. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Ben. I'm glad to uh, return to what I said initially this evening. I'm really, really happy to be here, as I always am. So thank you very much. Uh, this is a song called um, Which Way is Home? I've been running and walking Shouting and talking There's a balance between the extremes I shake as I sit here As the outcome seems unclear As the vultures above me can be And I got lost in the dark And carried on walking Now I don't know where to start Or where to look Or who to phone Now I don't know which way is home Broken the wax seal And the outcome seems unreal It's the darkness before the dawn Now 
This is a song um, from uh, Neil Diamond. From, um, I think it's from an album called Twelve Songs. Thank you. 
Tim and Dale and Casey guys have been fantastic this community. I think uh, Dale and Casey just got off the road like maybe what last night or the day before or recently? It's been a week. Been a week. Okay. Well then you you got color coming back to your face then. Yeah. So thank you guys for uh, joining us tonight. Uh, I think probably uh, Casey's probably played bass here more than anybody, and Dale has definitely drummed more than, than anyone in Emmaus Way. And uh, Tim, you are so very kind to this community. You've stepped in at least twice when we've had uh, sicknesses or all sorts of things, uh, in addition to normally playing uh, so often and amazingly for us. And I thought one of the things that's really interesting tonight, uh, just to kind of have it on your, your lips as we kind of step into the, the time of our piece, uh, but the music tonight has been raising some some powerful questions about community. One is, on what basis do we form and associate with others? But then the songs of preparation have taken us in a couple of interesting directions. One, uh, what does the absence of community do to us? Uh, what does the absence of relationship, uh, how does it affect our lives? And then, and then kind of reflecting on that as an invitation to connect. And we've been doing this for the last several weeks is really talking about how do we connect and how do we connect as a community, recognizing that we're in many ways on a, a kind of a, a, a second kind of decade.
decade of our journey together. And so this has been a really fun series after this summer, uh, letting kind of multiple voices in our community talk about their own perspective on faith and life and the histories that they've brought to us. Uh, We've been morphed to how does that inscribe on us as a group and what does it mean for us as a a future. So anyway, I'm excited about that. Uh, Let me give you a second to stand up and greet the people that are around you, offer them the peace of Christ if you would like. Uh, It's also a great chance to get coffee, which I'm going to do, or snacks in the back, and and just uh, introduce yourself again if you don't uh, know the person that's near you, and we will jump back into the dialogue here in about three or four minutes. So I'm so not excited about speaking off of my laptop tonight, but my iPad died, so we're kind of, we can mourn that. Um, The... um, Ben, when it's been in earshot. Oh, I get a second. I just want to get somebody to, to lower that mic stand there in a minute because uh, I, I can't see ebbs and folks that way. But um, hey, I wanted to kind of talk um, briefly about this. Has been a crazy staff week, and I, and was uh, just some desire that we pray for both Molly and Mark and Katrina. Uh, I don't know if you guys are up to speed on this, but Katrina, who just delivered um, Soren. What, two weeks ago? Um, she had a horrible, like, three days in the hospital this week, uh, very undiagnosed. It ended up being uh, um, appendicitis, and she had an appendectomy on, I think, Friday. Um, but uh, it was kind of 72 hours of searing pain. Uh, went to Duke for a day. Uh, the, the x-rays or whatever they do were inconclusive. Went to UNC for a day. Went home from Duke. Stayed at UNC. Uh, and you can imagine the, the craziness of having a newborn and trying to feed a newborn and being in the hospital. It was not a fun week. And interestingly, um, Mark and Katrina found out that they were losing their house in six weeks. So they got a notice from the landlord saying, uh, uh, we need a house in six weeks. Um, and so um, they actually bought a house on uh, on uh, Friday night in the hospital. <laughs> they, they had an accepted offer uh, as she was going into surgery. Uh, provisions came back during surgery. And then in a post-surgery uh, Phase, they uh, finished up the negotiations. <laughs> and, you know, Katrina is one of the rarest human beings on earth. I mean, what an, uh, she's going to hate me for saying this, but what a, a lovely, amazing person. Uh, Mark is in the room with Soren, and they're wheeling her in on her gurney. You know, and, and usually post-anesthesia, you're not like the most alert person on earth, right? I mean, you're generally kind of like, if you said something bizarre, no one holds you accountable to that. So Katrina looks up, and she's like on the gurney and they're trying to get the room settled and she looks at me and she goes, Tim, happy birthday. And I'm like, I mean, I don't know my own birthday and that's not under drug inducement, uh, you know? And so anyway, so Mark and Katrina have had a crazy week. They're trying to recover. Mark was going to lead music tonight and, um, and, uh, that obviously went out the window in the middle of all of that. So they're, solicitous of our prayers, as well as Molly. Um, I think most of you guys know this. Molly, when she moved here um, in August, started working in Mayus Way in September. Somewhere right after that was diagnosed with lupus. And so she has like 
the, uh, the medications are, are being worked on, but she has major flare-ups. And this morning she called and said she had the worst flare-up she's had in about uh, 8 to 10 months. And so she was like immobilized. And so anyway, she very much uh, solicits our prayers and, and understanding. She and I were going to do the dialogue together tonight. As a matter of fact, everything that you hear tonight is a, a collaboration of Molly to me, uh, but it'll just be me saying it tonight. So uh, we were both disappointed. We're excited about doing this together tonight. But I want to just lead us in prayer for uh, uh, the Williamses and for Molly and all of those things. And, and, um, and is there another intercession? We tend to do this when when something pops up, we always ask, is there something else in the room that you brought tonight that you would like someone to, to, to be mindful of and for us to pray corporately over? Tim, my sister just had surgery a couple days ago to have her thyroid removed, um, and it's doing well by just prayers for uh, her healing and... She's a three-year-old who has to understand that he, she can't pick him up and yeah. do all that for a while, managing all of that. Yeah, a lot of you guys are raising small kids, and you understand how crazy the the um, your your physical life is when you have kids that don't understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Dave. Anybody else? Well, let me lead us in prayer. God, we are deeply thankful for your presence in this world. Uh, it's a presence that we don't always understand. Uh, it, we, what we do understand is we do not manipulate that presence. We do not, um, we do not uh, forge you into compassion or cajole you into caring, but uh, you are a generative, creative, gracious God who cares deeply, and we are uh, the recipients of that mercy and that care. And in these situations, we... Uh, name them to ourselves and we name them to you as uh, ways to not only galvanize our own sense of care for each other, but an awareness of the burdens and the needs that we bring every week to this conversation and to the table that we set each week. And so we're very mindful of of Dave's sister and Mark and Katrina and the stress of uh, a new child and uh, what will inevitably involve a move in less than four weeks. And, and with Molly, the, the challenge that she faces to be ecstatic and excited about leading a conversation, and as she said this morning, uh, um, uh, just loves being in a man's way and being in this family of friends uh, and the loss that she has when, uh, when lupus flares up. So God, these are things that we uh, that that hurt us, that wound us as a community, and we uh, seek your wisdom, your guidance, your presence in each of these things, and are assured of those even as we pray them. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you. So, if I were worth my salt in technology, which will never occur, you will notice that I will be putting my password in here about ten thousand times tonight. But but we will live with that. So we've been. Um, we have been um, doing a series of conversations on uh, leading toward the conversation of who are we as a community and what are some of the most amazing possibilities that we face as a community uh, serving together, being together, living together here in Durham and in the extended community. But one of the things that we have done uh, to kind of lead this in is to talk about what we're not. Because we felt very strongly that uh, this idea of some negations uh, frees us up to be what we are. And so two weeks ago, I talked about why we're not an evangelical church. 
And last week, uh, Molly spoke about why we're not a mainline liberal church. And tonight, we're going to focus on the subject of why we're not a moderate church. But before we get to that, I want to ask a really odd and blunt question. But you guys are fantastic at odd and blunt questions, so I have little fear of asking this. Uh, um, Is Could you describe a way that we have made you uncomfortable at Emmaus Way. <laughs> at any point in your life journey with us, whether you've been here two weeks or 11 years, uh, somebody want to take a shot or two of any way that we've made you uncomfortable? <laughs> Tell us. First visit, it was Advent stations. Never encountered anything like it. Sorry if you're new here and never encountered that. We have a lot of different stations around the room pertaining to Advent. Laura and I were visiting here for the first time after being out of church as a whole for seven or eight months and then all of a sudden it's like break go to these stations everybody starts talking to each other two introverts it was like what is happening yeah and you were used to a very high performance church you know yeah yeah, yeah. high volume all those things yeah yeah and people are walking around yeah absolutely wow okay (laughs) that's a great answer so how have we made you uncomfortable Your music for me was uh, a challenge. <coughs> music was a challenge for me. Mm. Uh, like I, like the role, like, uh, 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 yeah, our very liturgical use of music, of, of locating music from any source in a framed liturgy, but not the norm, which is in the American Christian tradition that often does music based on how you experience that. And so typically that's the number one question that people do in planning worship gatherings is how will you experience uh, this music? Will it lift you up? Will it take you down? What will the, and, and it's not a question. We do ask that question, but it's probably been fourth or fifth uh, on the list. Is that fair to say? Yeah, 10th or 12th. 10th or 12th. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, we, but framing music from lots of, like, for example, Tim tonight is an amazing musician. He did a, uh, uh, a summer dialogue uh, as the speaker and musician a year and a half ago on the gospel according to Nick Lowe, who, uh, who I love and didn't know that I love because he's written all these great Elvis Costello songs that I love. But, but we use this, these forms that come from lots of different sources. That's a great one. Anybody else? How we've made you uncomfortable. Has anybody ever been asked this question in church before? No. I certainly don't think that it's meant to be answered out loud. (laughs) We're not looking for a lawsuit. (laughs) Tim spoke way too close to me the first time. Yeah. Yeah. When either one of our parents come. (laughs) Yes. I have a terrible streak of profanity the night someone's parents are here. I, I know that's, that's definitely true. <laughs> and there is a parent look that's a part of me. So I do know that look like, oh, my God, get our kids out of here. It, SK, yeah. Yeah, I've told the story a few times. But just the, first, the very first time I came, which was like seven years ago, it was too intimate. It was too intimate. We were looking at each other, and I was like, I don't know if I want to be here. And... Um, yeah, just like being, it's like encountering each other can be a lot to take in. So I came back a couple years later when I was sort of ready for that. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely intimate. I mean, doing uh, a dialogue here on a stage where you can see everyone's face almost all the time is, is really, really different. Um, Dale Baker, who's Dale's probably not in the room, so I can tell the story. Dale has... Um, has drummed for a couple of very successful bands, uh, Sixpence None the Richer when they had a, a, a top ten hit, and Over the Rhine, and so he's played some really big venues, right? And, and he was used to that. My, when, when he first started drumming in Emmaus Way, my daughter was a third grader and was just, just so frustrated that he, uh, he had left Sixpence before they played on uh, Hannah Montana, but, uh, uh, which is like about six months later. But, but he said as much as he's performed uh, 20 years as an unbelievable drummer, he's like, it's kind of odd to be in a room where you can see everyone processing the music that you're playing. It's different than being in a stadium or even somewhere like the Cat's Cradle where the lights are on you and you don't see everyone in the audience. Whereas in a Mayus way, you see everyone. You know, if, you're, if, if you're frustrated or have a question or are getting ready to speak, I might notice it if I'm looking on your side of the room. So anybody else? One more thing that makes you uncomfortable. Well, definitely in this church... It's a lot more liberal theologically than any other church I've been to. Yeah, so you, you what, what t- describe the tradition you've been from? Well, I was more like charismatic evangelical, so, you know, we believed the Bible was inerrant. Um, we had views about homosexuality and um, just sexuality in general, and, you know, all that stuff has been challenged, but I feel like being more intellectually honest has led me to align myself more with what's going on here. So. Well, that's true. And again, usually it is a lot easier to do church, by the way, when everybody comes from the same theological cut of the cloth, right? Because you can just be lazy about those assumptions. You can just say, eh, we all kind of think this way and pile on top of it. But, uh, but obviously, here's, this is a community where you may say something that somebody across the room says, I, I love you, but I, I think differently on that, uh, politically or socially or, or whatever. So, so weird comfort, for some reason, has not been a goal uh, for us. And in many ways, that's maybe the simplest answer of why we're not a moderate church. Because really, in moderate churches, one of the most dominant goals is that everyone stay comfortable. Everyone feels safe. Everyone feel like this is an okay place. And, and, and perhaps even to make sure that you don't talk that deeply to the person sitting around you, lest you find out that they think very differently about you than you on a very specific issue or otherwise. And so to some degree, we are certainly not a moderate church. And a couple weeks ago, I kind of laid out this kind of, um, I won't do it tonight, but this idea that in some ways, the, 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 particularly the Protestant continuum between evangelical to moderate to liberal makes common assumptions with different answers. And in some ways, what we're going to be talking about is why those aren't common assumptions for our community. So it wouldn't be natural or normal for us to be evangelical, to be liberal, or to be moderate. But let me, let me just kind of uh, give a, a, a short list of things that, that we would say we are, and these are not marks of a moderate church. One is that we very willingly 
enter into uncomfortable spaces. As you well testified, uh, the great Luke Fishbeck quote of uh, staying scrappy. We're, we're just, in some ways, we, we, we try to lead you into spaces that are not entirely comfortable. And those are political spaces, those are social spaces, those are theological spaces. Like, for example, could somebody give an example, maybe, uh, one example of where we did something either socially or politically or theologically and did it with ease, maybe? Maybe, but it was one that created some sense of like, well, I'm not sure I'm into that. Anybody give an example of that? Yeah. Well, this is a simple one, but the open table um, for communion, when I, my tradition, it was always, you know, you you had to be sure you were right with God before, or you'd be eating and drinking condemnation to yourself. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, to fence the table. So the fact that everybody's invited to the table here. I like it now, but at first I was like, Ooh. Right, and for some people, the word that Gail uses, a word that, that I was asked to use, might have been the craziest word you've ever heard of, fencing the table, right? But that was literally, I've worked at churches where there might have been the subheading for the pastoral assignment, Jim Thomas, fence the table. <laughs> Let somebody come over that barrier and take some crackers or something that we don't want that. But yeah, so that's a classic example of a theological practice that we do every week that has a deep sense of meaning, but it makes assumptions that some people would find deeply uncomfortable, and many of you probably have at one, one point in time. So one, we ask people to enter into uncomfortable spaces. Here's another thing I think that makes us not moderate is we read and form text as a community rather than you hearing the text as the exposition of an expert. Now, we've got enough theological degrees in this community. I'm not talking about me or Molly. I'm talking about some of you guys sitting around here. Uh, But it's not a space where an expert tells you how to read a text. But the reason you're sitting in a circle is we read text together. We construct text together. We we, uh, listen to it and we ask, how is it scripture for our community? And that, Molly, I think, would have said, if, if Molly were here tonight, I think this is where she would have jumped in and said, this is one of the freakiest things for me. Not the interpretive part, but the preaching part. Because Molly was trained in a whole different environment as a very beautiful, scripted um, sermon creator. And, uh, and when we get on this stool, we don't know what you're going to say. Uh, and, and usually that's fun. Now, it's been probably, I think it's been nine years since I've been called full of shit. And I actually kind of looking forward to that maybe in the, the next decade. Uh, but it has happened in a Emmaus way where people have said, I do not buy that. You know? and, and so that's something that's different. Uh, As Gail said, uh, number three is that we value an open table. And we're going to talk more about this next week, but an open table is an outward rejection of binaries. I mean, think of all the binaries that you could construct. Good, bad, prepared, not prepared. Help me out. Um, Believe, not believe, believe, save, not save. What else? Leavened, unleavened. Yeah, leavened or unleavened. In or out? Collective. Black, white, uh, a whole range of social. She went Calvinist. Oh, she said Calvinist. I heard that entirely wrong. Uh, I heard Calvinist and my skin crawled. I went straight to racial identity theory. I only say that because I was, I was educated in a Calvinist seminary. So, so that one kind of, that one, that one gets me. 
<laughs> but yes, think about all of these binaries that die at that table. Um, and something new is constructed, but not those binaries. Number four, um, we believe that love is what sustains the gospel and initiates us in the gospel. To say that a little bit more, love is what conversion, discipleship, mission, and evangelism looks like. How do you get in the game? You get in the game by radically loving people that you know, but even more so people that you do not know or loving people who are different. We think that truly is what we're doing. Now, here's a question. How many people, raise your hand on this, have done something absolutely crazy in the name of love? Just utterly, ridiculously foolish. We've got only a few honest people here. (laughs) I can list 500 things that I've done foolishly in the name of love. Ask me at communion and I will rattle a few off if you're interested. But love is not a moderate thing. Love is a crazy, ridiculous, all-in kind of thing. And a risky kind of thing, right? So we believe in love. And, And then number five is simply this. We are deeply suspicious about the status quo and often see the status quo as a subtle resistance to the adventure of the gospel. And that's one of the things that I think is deeply wrong in the ecclesial world that we live in is this sense that Christianity seems to be the bulwark to hold up the very things that we should probably be knocking down, right? And so the The gospel asks us to not be committed to the status quo, but to be destroying it in certain ways, rebuilding it in certain ways, and hoping in lots of different ways. So easy to say, but we are not a a moderate church. So if we're not, what's left, right? So if we're not an evangelical church, And we're not a mainline church, and we're not a liberal Protestant church, and we have a church with many people who are Catholic, but we're we're not a Catholic church in the sense of there's not a, even at small c, in one way, there's not a sense of organization. No one gave us the, the, the freedom to gather today. You just decided to show up, and we decided to start a church 11 years ago. There was not a hierarchy that gave us permission to do that. So the question is... What are we? Um, and, and one of our resources to answer that question is the gospel. Um, it, that's, that's what we're constantly drawn to as a community is to continually read and reread the gospel. Because I think as we declared earlier, there's nothing moderate whatsoever about the gospel. Um, and I would say that the gospel doesn't form us as liberal Protestants or as evangelicals or... Calvinists or Arminians or any of those things. It doesn't form us in those ways. It constantly transgresses whatever boundary we would try to build for that. Um, let's look at a text today. Um, if somebody, I think it's in your, your handout, look at Matthew 9, 18 through 26. And whoever finds it first or wants to read it, read it out loud. That'd be great. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. Then, 
Suddenly, a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned and, seeing her, said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report of this spread throughout that district. Thanks, Jim. So, one question on this text. Here is, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus being Jesus. Uh, I think we could have picked 20 texts without even thinking about it. But Jesus being Jesus. And, um, and one of the things that was an epitome of Jesus' ministry is he saw it deeply associated with a couple of things. The kingdom of God and his being sent, as he would say, by the Father. And he saw his actions as a constant embodiment of that sense of mission. And that mission was incredibly transgressive. In fact, the, the best thing we could say in terms of making sense of his death, his execution at the hands of the state, is that he undermined the well-being of the society around him. He, he crossed boundaries that, that ultimately were deemed not safe to cross. Looking at this text, what boundaries do you see being crossed either in the doing of this story or the writing of this story? What, what do you see that's transgressive here? Well, one thing is that this woman who was hemorrhaging was considered ritually unclean. Um, and so she made him unclean by touching him. Right. A, a flow of blood from a woman was to not be present in public society. It made her unclean and anyone who was near her unclean. And there's plenty of law and otherwise to affirm that point. Yeah. Touching the dead body. Yeah. Say something about that, Brian. Um, well, you know, another story that highlights the Jewish view of the dead is the um, story about the Good Samaritan where the holy people are crossing on the other side of the street in order to avoid touching what they consider to be a dead man because it would cause you also to be ritually Yeah, so there's, there's this gender transgression and there's this concept of life or death that Jesus is seeming to not appreciate the boundary between life and death with this. Yes? What else? I think of um, the leader of the synagogue who is a leader and he comes and he kneels and begs. And so the humility of that man um, and the humility of a man who is a, a leader in a patriarchal system begging for his daughter. Mm. Right? Like, I'm like, oh, this is a really good dad. <laughs> yeah. um, but so just. Just that, you know, um, him kneeling before Jesus begging something, even though he's a leader, 
and then also um, the fact that both of them, you know, that Jesus refers to the woman as his own daughter, and that that man talks about his daughter. Mm -hmm. That the women are the priorities yeah. in, these, in this passage. I think one of the most underutilized kind of reading lens for the Bible, and particularly uh, the New Testament with Jesus, because of the language of love that's so used, is how incredibly powerfully entrenched the patriarchy was during that day. I mean, we're, there's, we want to in some ways soften that patriarchy, and we use words like gentle and meek and things like that to some way soften uh, something that is not softened in the ancient Near Eastern world. And, and, and there are things that happen across gender lines here that are absolutely unfathomable. And there's another line even in this father advocating for his daughter, a man of status. Um, he represents someone who would be an enemy of Jesus. And to some degree, the line between friend and enemy is another classically transgressed line in this. So, I mean, literally, you could keep reading this story and you would find almost every boundary that you could think of that would be meaningful um, in that, that world. And Jesus seems to be forming a ministry that is not based on those binaries or those boundaries. Um, it's a strong text, but literally, I think we could have picked scores and scores and scores of text on this point. So let's pivot a little bit in this series. We've been talking about what we're not. We've been talking about not evangelical, not liberal, not moderate. So where are we going with this? And one of the things that I would say in reading a story like this is the realization that Jesus has created a new way a new kingdom, a new space, a third space, an entirely different way of doing life. And when we say, as we say almost every week, as people captivated by the gospel, and this is, I have a note written here, like this was, I wrote, great Molly point. <laughs> Here's something that Molly was going to point out this week, is that the gospel is not smug, right? I mean, how do you maintain a sense of smugness? When you read a gospel that undermines anything that would make you smug. So, I mean, let's say uh, we're a highly educated room. Uh, it would be uh, easy for us to say, well, at least I could be a little bit smug based on my education the things I know. We have the best words. I don't think we really have the best words, but we are close to having the best words around here, right? And, and if we said something like that and kind of positioned ourselves in that way, uh, what would we read in the gospel that would support that realization? Certainly not the people that Jesus spent time with or crazy statements that would say the people who haven't had the privilege of education, uh, if you want to find God, look right there. Those are the people. Hungry, naked, um, sick, whatever. I don't know where else to find Jesus, but that seems to be a location where God is overrepresented and everywhere else underrepresented. And you start hearing that stuff and you really have two choices. Get pissed off, <laughs> go somewhere else, or realize that I'm not sure I could be smug about the things that have deeply privileged my own life. Um, so the gospel is not smug. 
And so as we've thought about this, is if the gospel is this dangerous, inclusive, radical, rooted in love, then this is the third space that we are boldly saying we're trying to embody this space. As we were talking about kind of what are some images and what are some rich conversations about third spaces that might help us understand this. Because here's the threat is to treat gospel, not that you want to do this, though it's been done all the time, treat gospel as abstract and third space as abstract. Uh, This kind of conversations that we have at times that are do not identify what our lives are about, but we claim as generous, tolerant, or whatever people are talking about these days. So we don't want to treat the gospel as some sort of abstraction that we're for, but something that disturbs the very fabric of our lives. And so one of the things that, that we, uh, I study this, uh, some of you study this a lot more than I do. Uh, this is deeply meaningful to Molly as well. And our understanding is the whole idea of, of borderlands, this concept of, of, of borderlands where one entity collides with another entity. Now that language comes often out of the dialogue, a uh, geographical dialogue in, in our nation, often in the Southwest, um, Nydia made a great point about boundaries. You want to make that point about the, the I'll make it for you, <laughs> is that the, the boundary between, say, U.S. and Mexico, what, what's one of the things we might say about that boundary? It's always been there. Like if you fly over it, you'll see like this painted line that says uh, here and there, right? How many times has that boundary moved, right? It's a fluid boundary, and it's moved back over certain people and back over certain people and over people again. Borderlands are exhaustingly mysterious, challenging places because they are not fixed. And so when we're talking about third spaces, we're talking about this kind of borderline space, these in-between spaces where one thing collides with another thing. Not just a national boundary with another national boundary, but this collision, this in-between space that forces a liminality of life, right? How many times have you been in between something that made you uncomfortable but then forced you to imagine an entirely different reality. Let me read a quick quote on this that we picked out. Borderlands, and this is thinking about rhetorics, borderland rhetoric, meaning how we talk about things, can be playful rhetorics that allow for the exploration of unauthorized terrain. By unauthorized and contested terrain, I mean the spaces between and beyond binaries and those created at intersections and overlaps. Third spaces, borderlands, foster differential consciousness, which enables us to value and contribute to a coalitional consciousness. Meaning, who I am is messed up when I encounter people who are different from me. My identity, my sense of self is challenged by that. Revealed third space locations illuminate the spaces from which third space subjects self-identify as well as the spaces we occupy and or relegated to individually and collectively. What the heck does that mean? That's kind of like a cultural studies seminar. That's music to my own ears, but other than that, a third space like this is a space that that materializes between boundaries that would normally divide or subordinate 
or obscure us. Uh, that, that, that to some degree when we, and I'm talking about not just a geography, but bodies of politics, of theology and ideas, when we find ourselves between different entities, there's something incredibly beautiful that happens in those spaces. Um, in fact, there's a whole logic of social justice that says this is where we imagine an entirely different world, a more just world, when two different realities come together. Some of you guys know that because you date somebody, you hang out with friends, you're married to somebody who is incredibly different from you. Some of you know that because you have vocations that bring you constantly in contact with people that would... um, that would think differently from you or be a different life stage from you. And there's something that is created in those spaces that are uniquely powerful. Christina, we'll put you on the spot. Give us the Duke professor word on Borderlands. How about that for an opening? What is special, magical, and beautiful, scary, frightening, and crazy? And what do you try to tell your students when you're talking about this? Because you research particularly indigenous people who are often not mapped in the world that we map. Well, so so I was thinking about this, not necessarily just with my professor hat on, but also just what I was seeing in, in the text that we were reading. I think I think the things that are coming to my mind <coughs> are how important it has been as an intellectual project for us in the West. We figure out who we are by distancing and by saying no and opposition. Um, but the fact of the matter is that even for for all of us, well, I, well, I don't, okay, I'm scared to say all of us, but here I go. I mean, I think that the most profound ways that we think of who we are is in relationship to other people. So we have this way of thinking that the human is what's inside me, or when we think about where our soul is, we think the soul is somewhere inside of our body. We don't think of the soul as maybe on top of our skin. Right? We don't think of it as the thing that is between And so when I think about this notion of borderlands or third space, I think about how it's not just a rejection of um, this very important mental project that we were on that was like we want to make lists of yes and no and binaries, but it's actually just a recognition of, of reality, which is that we're both individuals and corporate. That we're, that this passage is about spiritual healing and physical healing. And one of them is not a metaphor for the other. They're both of them. And and that what Jesus does in this in this creation of this space is he brings everybody in. He brings the spiritual religious leader and the women and his disciples. And I think it's that he fundamentally rejects all of that. Um, there's something really terrifying about it and something that helps us recognize that everybody is totally deep and totally amazing and totally profound. Mm. Religion works way better. That's fantastic, Christine. It works better when there's a center, right? Because when you can name a center, you can name who or what or what thought or what reality is not in that center. And there's a sense of safety, right? We can form relationships around this. Luke and I feel pretty good that the center looks a lot like us and a lot less like Dave Eford. 
So we could actually form a relationship of we're not the Davy for people, right? And in fact, if we could galvanize enough power, we could build a wall, a barrier, uh, a, a doctrinal statement, uh, a subtle affirmation that what we are is what you should be and what others should become. And hence... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so now Luke and I have created an evangelistic project for Dave Eford. <laughs> we, can, we can sit down with Dave and say, Dave, we like you, sort of, but, but, but you aren't what you should be. And, of course, this is how we've written history. It's how we've inscribed race. Um, it's how we've inscribed so many other things. Uh, but if we say, rather than this rapid, incredible push to identify a center and run to that center... But to do just the opposite, to run from the center to the borders of our lives. And these can be physical borders, language borders, racial, ideological, theological, social, humanist borders, any of those things. If we say we're adamant about running to those spaces, it seems like we've abdicated exactly who we are. But in reality, what the gospel is telling us is if we're going to find God, we're going to find God in that border space. But this is the space where new imagination spurs us to think that what we do together isn't the only way to do it. And those of us who are gathered are not the only ones who could gather. And the truth that we claim isn't the only truth that could be claimed. It's frightening. It's mysterious. It's beautiful. And most would say that study this is this is where justice is not just imagined. It's where intimacy is not just imagined. It's embodied and created and placed. Because think of this. I won't ask for this story. Think about the time that you pushed yourself to something incredibly uncomfortable. This could be a, a place that you traveled to. It could be something that you tried to do. It could be a friendship that you formed, a relationship that you formed, a business that you started, a job that you took that pulled you into a space that was entirely alien to every sense of your body saying, let me go back to a center that's defined around who I imagine myself to be. And hasn't some of the most amazing things happened in those spaces? This, I think, is what the gospel is about. And this is where Molly and I are going with this in the next couple of weeks, is we want to spend some energy talking about this borderline concept as it's actualized in very specific practices. Because, again, I don't think this bordered space is, not, it is, a, is an abstraction. It's a reality. Uh, next week, we're going to spend considerable energy, as what Gail has raised tonight, the idea of the open table as a bordered space, a borderland space, and what it does to us. And we'll talk about this idea of dialogue and conversation and relationship as well. So that's where we're going. We want to talk about what it means to be a borderland community and what could that mean for our future. So that's where we're, we're going with this next week. Uh, I would love for you to begin thinking about this and think about how do specific ideas and practices change the way you think about things? What are relationships that have reformed you? I'm sure we'll ask questions like that. And we're going to ask as a community, what borderland spaces 
should we seek that are not normal spaces for us as a community? So uh, we look forward to that, uh, kind of leading in that in the next couple of weeks. And I think Tim is, and guys are ready to lead us in absolution and, uh, and uh, confession and absolution this evening. Thanks again for, for having us here. Again, uh, Mr. Dale Baker's playing drums, Casey Toll is playing bass, and um, my name's Tim Carlos. We're going to play a, t- a song from Tom Waits for you now. There's a house on my block that's abandoned and cold. Folks moved out. And they took all their things Never came back Looks like it's haunted And the windows all crack And everyone calls it the house The house where nobody is And once it held laughter Once it held dreams Did they throw it away? Do they know what it means? Did somebody's heart break? Did somebody do somebody wrong? Well, the paint was all cracked. It was peeled off the wood. Papers were stacked on the porch where I stood. And the weeds had all grown up just as high as the door. There were birds in the chimneys And a chest of drawers Looks like no one will ever come back To the house where nobody lives Once it held laughter Once it held dreams Did they throw it away? Do they know what it means? Did somebody's heart break? Did somebody do somebody wrong? So if you find someone, someone to have, someone to hold, don't trade it for silver, don't trade it for gold. I have all of life's treasures and they're fine and they're good. They remind me that houses are just What makes a house grand in the roof or the doors? If there's love in that house, it's a palace for sure. Without love, it ain't nothing but a house, a house where nobody lives. to close this, e- uh, this evening we're going to play you a song from, that appeared on Bob Dylan's album Shot of Love it's called uh, Every Grain of Sound
Like 
Thanks, Tim. Guys, I'm gonna arrange the stand so as to put the stand light on it. Because I've been bested tonight by the Reality Center's electrical idiosyncrasy. <laughs> if anybody else wants to take them on, it'll make setup a lot easier. I want to reflect just a second tonight on a couple of different types of third spaces that when I was thinking about this week, I could imagine. And I want to point us to these rocks over here, which we didn't make a big point of tonight, but the past two weeks when we've talked about not being an evangelical community, not being a mainline community, we wanted to acknowledge in doing that that we're probably bringing up some, some lament for some of us who have grown up in those spaces, who can imagine beauty in those spaces. There's beauty to be, be imagined in those spaces. So we created this sort of exercise to take a rock somewhere on this light to dark spectrum and to, to mark it in some way, to mark a hope or a lament that us not being evangelical or mainline means. And I think probably some of us can do that for the moderate thing tonight. And we invite you to do that. Afterwards, we've got a bowl up here where we're sort of putting all our hopes and laments together in a symbolic way to recognize that those things in and of themselves are what bring us together as a community and represent the mandate that we're collectively building for who we can be. A hope for a third, or actually a lament for a third space that I might have hoped for, but I think in a community like Emmaus Way that I I probably have to lament, is this this idea, particularly in this season of a four-year cycle, we're getting really ramped up to and the idea in a polarized space like we live in that there could be a moderate, measured, careful, thoughtful third space, right? Where, you know, you would have these people over here and these people over here and they would think it out carefully and, you know, we'd sort of split the difference and, and, and nobody would be too bothered by what was going on. We would think differently, but we would just sort of, you know, work it out together. Nobody would really have to change too much. You'd just kind of agree to be civil about things, right? That sounds pretty good. But I think I probably have to lament the absence of that for, for a number of reasons. But maybe the, the biggest one is that that third space, I realize, is probably, it probably sounds good because I'm doing fine. It it probably sounds a lot better to me than it would to a lot of other people. Because if I think about it for very long, that kind of third space is good news insofar as you don't have that much to lose. Or you don't need anything really that bad. Or you don't love anything enough to make you a little bit crazy in going after it. And I think the third space that Tim's articulating tonight, and I think that our table invites us to... It's, it's a lot rowdier 
And, and it's a lot more complicated, and it's asking a lot more of me than this sort of carefully measured space. It's in fact saying, you're not going to get to measure at all. You get to bring yourself, and you get to bring all your stuff with you, but this is not a place for measuring out binaries and who's how far from the middle, or even trying to protect the middle. This is about letting all that careful managing go and being willing to be uncomfortable. And, and being willing to create opportunities and lean into awkward but sacred collisions with each other and with God and with different understandings of how we might be together. And I think in, in many ways that's a hope, but it's a, it's a gritty hope. And it's that sort of gritty, unmeasured hope that we invite you to tonight in this practice that we do every week, where we, we gather around with each other, all, all are welcome, all are equally welcome. And, and we celebrate values that, that attract us, but we don't yet fully quite grasp. And we practice them together by breaking bread for each other and saying the body of Christ broken for you, and pouring wine and juice for each other and saying the blood of Christ shed for you. And trying to get a little glimpse in each other through some awkward collisions of what a better way of being together and being together as the people of God might look like. So that's the table I invite you to tonight. You're welcome. Please come and join us.